in the sixth week of a nine-week study of the book of Colossians that we've titled Mystery Revealed. And we're using this new equation of math here, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It's really the, the, the covering of what this book is all about. But let me first ask you a question this morning. True or false, experience is the best teacher. All of us have learned by experience, have we? And so it is a great teacher, but I would make a little adjustment. Actually, I think guided experience is the best teacher. I mean, imagine trying to learn how to cook without any prior knowledge or experience. It'd be kind of a mess in the kitchen. But what if you had a seasoned chef coaching you as you were learning how to cook? That'd be a great help, wouldn't it? Or how would it be trying to drive a car on your own without any encouragement? Uh, but would it make a difference if you had some behind the wheel lessons from an experienced driver? It would make all of the difference. Well, in the first century, the Apostle Paul was a qualified, experienced mentor uh, whose counsel was reliable, his advice was trustworthy, his warnings were constructive, and his uh, instructions were insightful. And that's probably why the lead pastor of the church in Colossae, a guy by the name of Epaphras, why he probably traveled all the way to Rome to visit Paul and to glean from him uh, some wisdom for the inexperienced uh, believers who had... Uh, brought together this community of faith in the city of Colossae. And so Paul wrote this letter and has some great things uh, for us to, uh, to grasp on today. So we're gonna go ahead and jump in. We're all ready to Colossians chapter three, uh, verses one through 11. Follow along, listen carefully. He says, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on a new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Now, I would imagine through the last few weeks, some of you have been kind of anticipating this moment because you've been waiting for us to get past all of that grace teaching and finally get around to the list of do's and don'ts uh, that have come kind of, kind of synonymous with the Christian faith. And so that there it is, it popped up, all the things we're supposed to be doing and not doing. But we've got to keep this in the right context. I love a quote from Brian Hedges I came across. I think he sums it up very well. He says, one of the biggest misunderstandings many people have about Christianity is thinking that becoming a Christian basically means becoming a better person. Christianity is confused with morality. The good news is reduced to good advice. 
And a religion of self-effort and moral reform replaces the true gospel of redemption and grace and transformation. And let me just say, what we're going to talk about today is still in the area of redemption and grace and transformation. So I'm helping you can kind of help you understand that and how it happens and then try to keep that in the proper context. Now, when I was growing up, uh, my parents made sure that I went to church camp every summer. Uh, in fact, it was a church, I was at church camp when I was 16 years old when God actually tapped me on the shoulder and called me into ministry. But back in the day when I was going to camp, we were able to do some amazing, fun things at church camp. At least I thought they were amazing. That was what was so much fun about it. Uh, we would do like Bible drama nights, and I would always hope that I would get on the Bible drama team that was doing the story of Elisha when he called down fire from heaven, you know, and uh, because our, our sponsors would usually do some fun things with that. They'd like get a cable and they would crawl up in a tree and try the cable at one end and then they'd bring the cable down to the ground and they'd put a big, uh, you know, bunch of firewood around it and then they'd pour gasoline all over that firewood. Then they would crawl up in the tree and they would have a roll of toilet paper also doused in gasoline and when we acted out the skit and we would call down fire from heaven, they'd shoot that little roll of toilet paper on fire down to the flames and it would catch on fire and when I was a kid, man, that was awesome. That was so, they don't do that anymore, just so you know. Um, That was awesome. Um, And so when I was serving then on a staff at a church in Marshalltown, Iowa, the young people of that area actually went to the Northeast Iowa Christian Camp. And actually, I came online a couple of pictures of it. It almost looks like it did uh, back in the the mid-80s. And in the couple of summers that I helped uh, staff a week at camp, I had two very interesting experiences One was where we're trying to help the kids understand, you know, sin is serious business. Uh, Jesus had to die. And before Jesus died, there were many uh, lambs that gave themselves as a sacrifice to help kind of give the idea of rolling sin back. And so they did this little drama with uh, uh, Jacob and Esau. And the guy playing Jacob actually brought in a live lamb on his shoulders, laid it on the altar and killed it right there in front of all the kids. Guess what was a great topic at the camp meeting next uh, fall? A lot of parents were there wondering, what did you do to my kid? You traumatized my kid. Others said it was a very great uh, experience. See how camp is? Just letting you know. Um, the second... The second experience, and here's what I really want to focus on, it was a social experiment intended to deliver a lesson uh, at a middle school camp. Remember middle school camp? And so on one particular morning at this middle school camp, early before all the campers got up, the sponsors got up and actually abandoned the camp. They left camp. Uh, Now, they they left uh, just a couple of adults in hidden places, but then they just let the kids get up on their own. And it was kind of interesting because at first, the kids did pretty well, but the longer it went on that there weren't any adults around, can you guess what happened to their behavior? (laughs) It started to deteriorate. And uh, they were, you know, bullying people, throwing little kids down the water slide. The guys were going in the girls' dorm. The girls were going in the guys' dorm. And it was really just kind of a mess uh, that broke out. And uh, in in case any of you parents, again, are getting a little bit nervous because we're sending kids to camp this week and the next couple weeks, they don't do that anymore at camp. They all wear helmets for everything they do. It's it's safe. It's (laughs) uh, It's safe. Uh, But I share that because you think, wow, what happened? Why did the behavior of those middle schoolers deteriorate so quickly? Well, part of it is because they're just middle schoolers. 
And it was partly, though, because of the lack of supervision or law or structure. And we talked about that last week, how we should be thankful to God for the law that he's given because it does bring order to our existence here on this earth. But what really probably led to that was what something Paul, if you heard, identified in our text that influences not only middle schoolers, but also all of us as well. It's called the earthly nature. And that's why what we're gonna talk about this morning for just a few moments is what I would call the mystery of the earthly nature and why it's so uh, important for us to understand that and keep it in the right perspective. Now to get us there, I wanna start out by uh, giving to you two big religious words and kind of helping you understand those a little bit better. The first big religious word is a word called orthodoxy. Orthodoxy. And orthodoxy uh, just literally stands for what you believe. It's the doctrine of belief, the truths that you hold on to. And all of us have some kind of orthodoxy. Now, the second big religious word is very much like it. It's a word called orthopraxy. And orthopraxy just means how you live what you believe. Now, hopefully in your life, the two of those are congruent, what you say you believe and how you believe, because that really is going to find out. In fact, you wanna, if you want to determine what it is that you really believe, find out how you behave, because those two really two go together well. But what we need to remember is that in the pagan religions of Paul's day, they said little or nothing about personal morality. A worshiper at a pagan altar uh, could bow before the idol, could put his offering on the altar, and then go back to the same old life that he was living before he began to worship. And so what a person believed had little direct relationship with how they behaved. Now, when Christianity came on the scene, it was different because that's not how Christianity was created to function. In Christianity, what you believe is intended to impact how you behave. And I mention that because there are people today who would say, I believe in Jesus, I'm a follower of Jesus, but they don't really live that way. And the problem with that is we're, we're created to, to live in Christ. And so in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, notice it says, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. But remember, it's not so, we don't try to live like him so that he will love us and accept us. Uh, we actually live that way because he already does love us and accept us. And we're gonna talk about that in just a little bit. That's why the apostle Paul spent the entire first part of his letter focused on orthodoxy. In other words, trying to help us understand that we're not saved by any of our good works. We're saved by Jesus alone. He's the source of our salvation and our forgiveness. And so if you don't put uh, what Paul says in the second section of his teaching in that perspective, you might maybe misunderstand it and even hear it legalistically. Now, I need to introduce you, secondly, two very big theological words, two big theological words. And the faith community really came up with these words to try to provide some definition for us to help us understand what happens to us in the experience of salvation. And it's significant for us to remember that one describes an event, the other describes a process. The first big theological word is the word justification. Sounds like a religious word, doesn't it? Justification. And this is what happens when someone puts their trust in the completed work of Christ on the cross, where he died so that our sins could be completely forgiven. 
And a description of that is found in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, where it says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, in other words, they're considered as if they've done no wrong. And so I, I think I've shared with you before, but one of the best ways to remember what it means to be justified is just that statement. Being justified is just as if I'd never sinned. That's what justification it means. It means just as if I'd never sinned. And so when God looks at us in Christ, our sin is covered by Christ's righteousness. So going back to Colossians 2 that we looked at earlier, notice it says, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And we need to keep remembering that. Our sin has been forgiven in Christ. That's entirely on the basis of faith. That's why, for example, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, uh, and then we also sometimes forget chapter 10. Notice it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So we're saved and forgiven by our faith in Jesus Christ. But he goes on to say, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we're not saved by our good works, but we're saved for good works. That brings me to an interesting passage of scripture in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 14. And here's gonna set us up for the next big theological word. There it says, for by one sacrifice, Jesus died on the cross, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And that brings us to our second big word, which is the word sanctification. The word sanctification. I mean, use this, use this on your friends this week. Say, man, I learned some big words in church this week, justification and sanctification. And to be sanctified means I live on the outside how I look to God on the inside. See, justified makes us look good to God because our sins have all been forgiven. Sanctification means I live on the outside how I look to God on the inside. And so, for example, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, the apostle Paul writes there, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Notice he didn't say work for your salvation because that's already done. But you need to work out what's already in you. And so while justification is an event, sanctification is a process and it's the process of you becoming more and more like Jesus. Notice what it says in Colossians 1 that we read that earlier, or earlier in the study, verses 28 and 29. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. That's sanctification. It's the transformation that takes place in us when we are freed from sinful habits and in their place, we begin to develop Christ-like priorities and character and virtues. 
And so the goal of your faith walk upon becoming a Christ follower should literally be, I'm going to become more and more like Jesus. Not so that I'll be saved, but because he's already saved me. And see, grace, when we understand that, grace doesn't simply produce a better version of the old person, but rather an entirely new person. And probably the best example of that is a passage I found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And the Apostle Paul is writing to a group of believers in the city of Corinth. And here's what he says, or don't you know that wrongdoers are not going to inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men, nor men who have sex with other men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, when he was probably saying that, some of those people are going, well, do I have any hope? But notice he says, and that is what some of you were. But you were changed. You were transformed. It says you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, by the spirit of God, of our God, and for his glory. And so when you're justified, God begins the, the work of sanctification in you as he implants desires in you that were not there before. And so if you're truly a Christ follower, you should sense, I have this desire to know God and to glorify him, a desire to pray and a desire to worship, a desire to love and bring benefit to others, a desire to live a God-honoring life. And in sanctification, the Holy Spirit works with you and in you so that you can become on the outside what God sees, how God sees you on the inside. Now, Paul understands that there's one thing that can hinder the progress of sanctification, and so he addresses it in this, in, this, in this letter. And there's a problem that he notes with the human condition called the earthly nature. Now, when we become a Christ follower, we get Christ's righteousness, we're being made new, but we still possess this earthly nature. And it's the part of us that leans towards sin. Have you ever noticed in your life how easy it is to sin, to do wrong? I mean, you can just, you know, not even have to think about it, and it's easy to fall into the trap of sin. That's because we have that earthly nature. It's a lot more difficult sometimes to do what's right. And so this earthly nature is the old operating system that must be continually overridden. And so if sanctification is going to take place, and again, these are hard concepts, we've got to override that old operating system. And it's the overriding uh, of that old operating system uh, that is called sanctification. And so Paul here gives us three practical um, sanctification practices, the first of which is this. Make sure you maintain an eternal perspective in your life. Maintain an eternal perspective. Notice he starts this passage all with what's going on in our heads. Since then you've been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above. And then in verse two he says, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Now let me just say, that doesn't mean that we're supposed to keep our head in the clouds. Paul's not suggesting that we live each day in kind of the supernatural, out of touch, la-la land. Everything's good. Uh, we don't want to become so heavenly minded. We're of no earthly good. People have said it like this. But, but it does mean that we begin to set our mind on things above. It, it means we begin to view earth from heaven's perspective. So that in the practical, everyday things of life, we're getting our direction from Christ in the way that we need to live. And that's not going to happen um, just by chance. We're going to have to be intentional. I remember when I first became a Christ follower and started to grow in my faith, and people said, hey, one of the most important things that you can do is to start your day spending some time with God, getting into his word and reading and praying about it. 
What's interesting is I was always directed to a passage of scripture in the Gospel of Mark, chapter one, verse 35. And Mark 135 says, very early while it was still dark, who? Jesus got up, left the house, and he went off to a solitary place where he prayed. You know what I think he was doing? He was spending some time with God as he started with day so that he could get his mind set on things above. If Jesus needed to do that, how much more do we need to do it? Now, what's the problem with that for most of us? There's never enough time in the morning, is there? I mean, we got to get up, and we get up, we got to rush for work, we're getting our hair done and our clothes on, and we're getting the kids ready, and we're running around, we're scrambling. There doesn't seem to be even a few minutes, but that's why we're, it requires discipline. We're going to have to make it important enough uh, to be able to do that. Now, if we're going to maintain an eternal perspective, uh, we've got to understand a very important truth, and that is that dead people do life differently, Right? Dead people do life differently. Now, in case you're wondering, what do I mean dead people do life differently? In this passage of scripture, the Apostle Paul said in verse three, for you died. And for us to be able to be transformed, we've got to recognize there was a time when I you know, gave up my life and I laid, surrendered my life to Christ. So, for example, in Galatians 2.20, here's what Paul says. He says, I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I never live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now the fullest explanation of this wonderful truth is that Christ not only died for us, but that we also die with him. And when we die with him, we say, you know what? I'm living with a different mindset, with a different perspective. And so I'm dead to sin. It no longer has power over me. And remember that, because that's gonna come into control in just a little bit. But in Colossians 2:16, it says, so then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him because you died. Second thing we need to recognize is that resurrected people have a unique outlook on death. If you died and then you were raised with Christ, you have a unique outlook on death. Because if you've truly been raised with Christ, then you no longer fear death. And so when your life begins or ends, doesn't really matter. That's why the Apostle Paul could say in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I share that with you again just because sanctification begins with our thinking. If we're gonna, if we're gonna become uh, on the outside what we look like to God on the inside, it has to start with our thinking. And before we can move to the second practical um, sanctification practice, we've gotta make sure we've got our hearts and our minds in the right place, or we'll never be able to do the second one, which is to execute ungodly desires. And this really is the key, because it's our desires that usually lead to our behavior. So notice what he says in verse five. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Now, before I go on, let me just say, put to death, what does that mean? It means just say no. Because if you've died, sin no longer has power over you and doesn't have control. But a lot of times we think because those desires come from within, well, then it must be true, it must be right. No, we put those things to death. And here's what he says we're supposed to put to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Now, those things we know are, are powerful. And if you haven't really died It'll be much harder, maybe even impossible, to put those things to death that belong to your earthly nature. 
In the 1800s, uh, there was a pastor who was talking with an Indian chief, and so he had a different perspective. He was talking to him about becoming a Christ follower. And the Indian chief was talking about a temptation that he was experiencing, the, 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 the earthly nature in him. And in his thinking, he said, you know, uh, to me it's kind of like two dogs. There's a, a good dog and a bad dog, and they're fighting each other within me. And the pastor asked the chief, which dog wins? And the Indian said, the one I feed. And so if we're going to put to death the things of the flesh, we need to make sure that, that we, we don't feed those desires. And so whatever your sinful tendency is, if you're going to put it to death, you're going to need to pay attention to uh, where and when you're tempted uh, and then avoid those times and those places so that you don't make it harder on yourself. Now, I remember hearing a story about a guy who was uh, trying to cut down on some of the sweets in his life, but every morning, he usually had the habit of on his way to work, he'd stop by the donut shop and he'd get some donuts. And so he really wanted to kind of break that habit, but he, he said, well, maybe it's okay. So one morning he prayed and said, God, if you want me to have a donut, then when I drive by the donut shop, if there's a parking spot open, then I'll know that you want me to have a donut. It only took him three times driving around the block until the, <laughs> until the spot opened up. If you struggle with a, with a sin or desire, don't go near where it is if you're going to be able to put it to death. And so you've got to execute um, ungodly desires. And then number three, the third practical sanctification practice, you're going to have to eliminate ungodly behaviors. Now, what is it that causes ungodly behaviors? You know, most of the time, it's just uh, negative interactions that we have with other people that kind of fuel or create these powerful emotions. And God is the one who gave us emotions, but not to, for us to put them in charge, but I kind of like to be like warning lights on the dashboard to let us know that something's wrong. But sometimes, you know, instead of them simply informing us, we kind of give them control. And so most ungodly behaviors are caused by emotions that have gotten out of control. So in verse eight, here's what he said, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these. And it's a pretty formidable list, isn't it? Anger, rage malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. And you know, we could start with just anger, and I've preached a whole series of message on that one subject because it's a major stumbling block. And it doesn't lead us to a godly life. That's why in James chapter one, it says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. I would imagine that your anger doesn't usually produce the righteous life that God desires. Came across a quote that hopefully will kind of help you on this. A guy by the name of Robert Two said, every time you get upset at something, ask yourself, if you were to die tomorrow, was it worth wasting your time to be angry over? And so many times, we don't get rid of those things. We just kind of hang on to them and hold on to them. Now, part of the challenge, I think, is that we live lives that are unexamined. We go through a day, and there's times that we blow it and th ways that we mess up. And we never go back to say, you know what, I should do that differently. And so I've already mentioned it's important for you to start the day kind of getting in the right frame of mind. I'd encourage you also to take a few moments at the end of the day. In fact, I want to commit together with all of you that for the next few weeks until we can develop maybe a habit of it, that we start the day getting our mindset on things above, but that we end the day kind of just reviewing our life. And I've got, uh, I've, I've had, I just haven't practiced it enough, what I call a landing sequence. 
I have a launch sequence because I know when, you know, when pilots get in airplanes and they get ready to take off, they have a launch sequence that they go through that they do all this checklist and make sure everything's in the right place. I try to do that. I also have a landing sequence. And most of the time that landing sequence is me thinking, how did I treat people today? Were there relationships that got out of line? Did I allow some emotions to take control? And because I've never... I've never really evaluated that or examined that. I've never paused at the end of the day to say, you know what, Jesus, tomorrow I need to help you to help me do better. Now, in verse 9 of this chapter, it says, since you've taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, we just talked today about what we need to take off tomorrow or next week. We're going to talk about what we need to put on. But just a reminder as we, as we close, the Christian faith is not about us or God redecorating the same old soul. It's about an extreme makeover that begins when you and I surrender our lives to Christ and let him be Lord of all. That's why we would say again, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Let's pray. Father, thank you today for an opportunity to remind ourselves uh, of just the challenge that we face in this life, of keeping in balance these two things of justification and sanctification. Uh, we, we, don't, we aren't made right with you because we do the right things. We do the right things because we've been made right with you. And I pray that you'd help every one of us in this room to be able to live there. And if there's someone who hasn't gotten to that place yet where they've died to themselves and been raised with Christ, I pray that you'd keep leading them to the grace and the truth that you offer in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.